Are we right now? Yes, that sounds better. Thanks, Adrian. Okay, let's just pray. Father, we just thank you for your goodness. There's so much to thank you for. And Lord, throughout our days, our years, as we come to you tonight, but Lord, all the time, you are so good to us. So much of it we don't even see. But Lord, I just pray that you'd be with us now. And Lord, I pray that you would just take my simple words and by your Holy Spirit, just apply them and help us, Lord, to go on and make them flesh in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. You know, quite a few of you have seen me, as you've said, when I'm out walking in the morning. Well, sometimes when I'm out walking, I might see like 20 cents or something like that lying on the footpath, and I pick it up. Now, seriously, who wants 20 cents? I mean, I never used to pick up like 20 cents or something like that, but then I heard Joyce Meyer talking about it, and look, she's got heaps of money, super rich. But she picks up little coins off the footpath and she explains that she does that because in some countries there are people who are so poor they would be fighting to get that little coin off the footpath. Now a 20 cent coin might not mean much to me but when I come across one I pick it up just to remind myself firstly how blessed I am that that is not a big deal to me. And secondly, that little things count. And if not to me, to someone else, that God really cares about. And God really does care about the small things in our lives. You know, he sees all the little stuff, like people picking up 20-cent coins. He knows how many hairs each of us have on our head. He sees the little joys, the little victories, the little hurts. He sees the little ones that that go over and over so they become big. He sees, he knows, he's here to help. I think so much of life consists of the little things. And God sees. He sees if we drop litter. He sees if we pick litter up. He sees if we give someone a friendly smile, a kind word, do a little kind deed. If we stop and pick up that pile of jagged glass on the footpath so that some kid with bare foot, bare feet isn't going to come along and injure themselves. He saw when a poor widow gave an offering that for all the world looked like next to nothing, but in his eyes it was more than what anyone else gave because he saw what a sacrifice it was for her. And all my, all my Christian life, I've been totally convinced that after that, he arranged for the biggest food parcel ever to go to her house. As human beings, we are so often drawn to the big and the spectacular, but so much of our daily lives revolves around the small and the ordinary, and God is there in that with us. You know, years ago, not the current house, but the one before that. I was helping Jodie and Sam when they were moving, and I was doing cleaning and stuff like that. And at night when I got home, my car boot was full of all this dirty washing and cleaning gear, and I couldn't open the boot because my vacuum cleaner somehow had got jammed. 
and I was trying every way to open the car boot and I was getting pretty frustrated and, you know, like I was really getting agitated and finally I said, Holy Spirit, please help me to open this boot and immediately I had this random thought, drive up Longreach Drive. Now, Longreach Drive is really close to our house and it would be like one of the steepest streets in West Auckland. So I drove up there. When I got near the top, got out, opened the boot. Sure enough, everything had moved so I could open it. I put the vacuum cleaner in the back seat and drove home. Got all my work done. Yes. But the thing is that that's just such a little practical thing. But God cares about little things like that. He wants to be involved in the little things in our lives. And he also uses the little things that we give him. Little things count. And, you know, like Sam was telling us a number of weeks ago, every day we make, if we make that effort to clothe ourselves, endure ourselves with the Holy Spirit, surrender our little to him, our little words, our little resources, prayers, time, you know, little bits of time can make such a difference. Think about you know, the Olympic Games, like a fraction of a second makes a massive difference, doesn't it? Our little bits of time. Anything we give to God can be powerful in his hands. Jesus fed thousands with one boy's lunch of two little fish and five bread rolls. One of David's stones slung out of his sling sent the giant Goliath crashing to the ground. And apparently, when David Stone hit him, Goliath was heard muttering, nothing like this has ever entered my head before. <laughs> Remember how God whittled Gideon's army right down to 300 men. 300, hopelessly outnumbered by 135,000 Midianites. But those 300 won a great victory over that 135,000 because God was fighting for them. When we put our little into the hands of our big God, there's no telling what can happen. Now, on the flip side, little sins can have a powerful negative effect. Song of Solomon 2 and verse 15 Catch for us the foxes, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards. The little foxes that ruin the vineyards of our lives are little sins. And we've got to get a grip on them because sin is sin. And even little sins have got the potential to turn deadly. And Sam says, I'm an animal lover. Well, I don't know, but we're on the animal theme here. Do you know that the deadliest animal in the world is not like a great big tiger. I've seen a tiger up close in a zoo. They're absolutely huge. It's not a big tiger or a bear or a huge stampeding elephant or rhino. It's a mosquito. That is the deadliest animal in the world. This tiny insect kills around 3 million people a year through the spread of malaria. You see, we underestimate these little creatures because of their size. And I'm sure you've all heard these awful stories about people who keep wild animals for pets. You know, they might get like a cute little tiger cub and have it for a pet, but then they grow up and they get big. 
and then sometimes the unthinkable happens and they kill their owners. And I think the most horrifying scenario that you seem to hear about quite often is people who get killed by their pet snakes. Ugh. To be honest, I think having a pet snake is totally horrifying, let alone being killed by one. And about a year ago, a young man, I think he was like 31, an animal lover, he kept 10 snakes and 12 tarantulas in his bedroom. Now, clearly he was a single guy. <laughs> he was killed by his eight-foot python. Now, he had kept that as a as a pet since it was a tiny little baby snake, eight foot. His mother found him dead in his bedroom. I can hardly believe that his mother would even go into his bedroom, <laughs> but I suppose she was worried about him. But the moral of the story is that we can't afford to treat little sins as though they're harmless little pets because they have the potential to turn deadly. You know, David brought down a giant with a stone, but it seems like something just as small, a little indiscretion, a lingering lustful look, ended up with him committing adultery first of all, then deception, and then murder. You see, little things can add up to big disasters, big tragedies. Over a hundred years ago, a Christian writer said, it's one of Satan's most successful devices to lead people to the commission of little sins, to blind the mind to the danger of little indulgences, little digressions from the plainly stated requirements of God. Many who would shrink with horror from some great transgression are led to look upon sin and little matters as of a trifling consequence, but those little sins eat the life of godliness out of the soul. Isn't that the truth? We really need, we really need to understand the danger of these little sins and to deal with them. And then small sins of speech, like a little lie. Well, I always say a half-truth is a whole lie. Then how big is a little lie? You know, one little cruel or critical comment can do so much damage. That's a big stretch, isn't it? <laughs> Karen Carpenter was a famous singer, and she died of anorexia. And her brother says that when his sister was younger, someone once, just once, referred to her as Richard's chubby little sister. She never got over that comment and it destroyed her self-esteem, and then it took her life with anorexia. Now, of course, the opposite is also true. Even little words of encouragement and hope can turn a life around. You know, words of appreciation, and we need to make it our aim to be dispensers of sincere words of encouragement and appreciation, to build people up, not tear them down. And often the most important people that God has put in our lives to build up are the little people in our lives, kids, grandkids. And we can affirm them by noticing the good things that they're doing and tell them about it 
And okay, with some of them, you might have to look very hard to find something good. But you know what? They're the ones, oh, thanks, Ivan. Oh, yeah, that's a bit, thank you. That's very, very considerate, thank you. You have to look very hard to see the good. Those ones are the ones that need it most. And our little injection of kind words can make an incredible difference. Now, we need God um, in, the, in the little day-to-day -day things of life as well as in the big things, moving on here. Now, Buzz Aldrin was a famous astronaut, and he did three spacewalks in 1996. Us oldies can remember that. And then in 1969, he and Neil Armstrong were the first two people to land on the moon and walk on the moon. And what a lot of people don't know, that he was a Christian. He was a Presbyterian elder, so he took his stuff, and he took communion on the moon. Now, years later, a Christian asked him, you know, when you landed on the moon, when you walked on the moon, was that when you needed the strength of God more than any other time? And Buzz Aldrin said, no, it wasn't. He said, it was when I got back home and I fell into depression and I became a hopeless alcoholic. That was the time of my greatest difficulty. He said, it's much harder walking on planet Earth than it is walking on the moon. Isn't that the truth? You know, sometimes we find ourselves in that wonderful mode that we read of in Isaiah 41, 40 verse 31. Those that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. We love the soaring like eagles, the running and not getting tired. That's great. That's when we're walking on the moon, isn't it? You know, we're getting carried along by the momentum of the Holy Spirit. That's the big stuff. But, you know, the Bible says it's the small stuff that gets us. Walking on planet Earth is our biggest issue. That's when, and that's what we're doing most of the time. You know, walking, same old, same old, one foot after the other. That nitty-gritty, unspectacular routine of daily life. You would think, wouldn't you, that walking is easier than running. But the Bible says it's in the walking that we're most likely to faint, lose a plot, give up. And that's when we most need to wait on God in these little things, daily establishing habits like prayer, reading our Bible, waiting on the Holy Spirit, putting on the Holy Spirit each day, learning to draw on his grace, on his strength, and then we will walk and not faint. Now, another very important key to learning how to walk and not faint is actually being faithful. Faithful in the devotional side of things, of course, but faithful in all things. It's a key characteristic for Christians, really key in our Christian life. And we need to persist in putting on the Holy Spirit, not giving up, you know, doing those little things, fighting the, the little battles to do what's right, all of that. You know, working our way through the Bible in a year, little by little, being faithful in those things, but being faithful in little 
And all these little things count because the, babe, the Bible is very clear that if someone is faithful in the little things, they're also going to be faithful in the big things. And if they're not faithful in the little things, they won't be faithful in big things. So in other words, how a person fulfills a little job or handles a small amount of money is an indicator of how they will fulfill a big job and handle a big amount of money. Luke 16 and verse 10, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. A man was hired by a bank and then a bit later on, he'd been there for a while, some, someone, a superior, came along and asked him to do a small favour. And the small favour was something dishonest for the bank. And he said to the person who asked him, he was an honest man, he said, well, look, if you want me to steal a little bit from the customers, then how do you know that I'm not going to steal from the bank? Well, isn't that the truth? And then I think, you know, in... We look to America for our example here, but it happens everywhere, of course. But there are so many politicians in America, and so you're always reading about someone who's dogged by scandal. And when there's a scandal, you can guarantee that there are always going to be supporters who are saying, well, look, it doesn't matter what's going on in someone's private life. You know, that doesn't have anything to do with their performance as a leader. Well, actually, it has everything to do with their performance as a leader. Because if a man lies to his wife, then he's going to lie to the people who voted him into office and in other situations. A trustworthy person is the one who has integrity in private, where only God knows what's going on. And God will use the little things to test our integrity too. Like, you know, do we get to work on time? I think one thing that's a real biggie is do we say do we get back to people when we say look I'll get back to you you know I'll call you back because that's something that we do all the time but we need to be careful on things like that um, we really need to all take a look at our level of faithfulness in small things because in some ways that is our level of faithfulness. David Wilkinson's brother once said, until you can make a big job out of a little job, you will never have a big job. In other words, true greatness consists of being great in little things. And that's what God is always looking at. Right, moving on. We've all heard the saying, good things come in little packages. And isn't that the truth? You know, often the things that we value the most really are little I mean, think babies, diamond rings, right? Get in the picture. <laughs> so I want to look at four things that come in very small packages, but they are extremely wise. And of course, they're animals. <laughs> that God wants us to learn from their wisdom. Proverbs 30, verse 25 to 27. Ants are creatures of little strength, yet they store up their food in the summer. Conies are creatures of little power, yet they make their home in the crags. Locusts have no king, yet they advance together in ranks. A lizard can be caught with the hand, yet it is found in king's palaces. And everyone has a yet, you know, they make up for their weakness with wisdom. 
Going to start with the conies, the extreme wisdom of conies. Well, what are conies? Because we don't have these in New Zealand. Are they? Yes, there they are. They're cute, furry, rabbit-like creatures that live among rocks. And when a big eagle or some predator comes looking for them, they make a run for it. They run for the rocks and they go in under the rocks and hide there. And when you're little and weak and defenseless, you really need a big rock to hide under. And you can see where we're going with this. You know, as soon as you see danger, you need to run. And that is the key. That's the extreme wisdom that we need to learn from the Kony. Find a big rock and then run for it before we get overcome. But first of all, we need some self-awareness. We need to know our weaknesses, our triggers, the dangers that we've got to run from. You know, what is our besetting sin? What is the thing that always sidetracks us out of God's will? What are the thought patterns that, you know, always seem to lead us down the garden path? And we've got to be honest with ourselves, just ourselves, and God. The little Coney is not ashamed to know that he needs a power greater than himself. Secondly, we've got to have this evacuation plan for getting out of danger and getting out fast. The Bible tells us that God is our rock. That's where we run and hide. Okay, We don't run to booze or drugs or porn or food or any other well-worn escape routes. We run to our rock. Psalm 62, 6-7, He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress, I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honour depend on God. He is my mighty rock of refuge. Now, of course, it's easier said than done, isn't it? So we've got to make a firm decision to make a dash to our safe place as soon as we sense danger. And like that, Coney has to take the initiative. We've got to do that too and make a dash for the rock as soon as we see that shadow of the eagle. So it's important to run. It's important to run in the right direction. Proverbs 18 and verse 10 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. It's just saying the same thing. We have to run, but it's not automatic. It doesn't drop on us. We've got to do it, get ourselves to that place of safety, to our prayer closet, to God's word, to praise and worship, to raising a hallelujah, to get away from a certain place or person or whatever it means for us to apply the wisdom of the coney and run to the rock. Okay, moving on, the wisdom of the locust, which is about unity. Now we know, you can see them all going in the same direction. We know that one locust isn't going to do a lot of damage. I mean, one little locust can only eat so much. But by working or eating together in unity, a swarm of locusts can eat every green thing in sight. Apparently, a large swarm of desert locusts can eat 20,000 tons of vegetation in one day. That's quite a feed, isn't it? They have the power to ruin and devastate a whole nation, like what happened to Egypt in biblical times. And all that is accomplished just by cooperating together in unity. No king, no leader, they just work together. In John 17, Jesus prayed that we may be one as he and the Father are one. 
He knows that the church will be so much more powerful if we unite right across the board, all denominations. That's what we are, champions of unity at Church Unlimited. We must learn to put aside our differences, to work together without fighting for position or fighting for the microphone. I've got it right now. To promote God's agenda, not man's agenda. In other words, always seeking to be led by the Holy Spirit. So we just got to take every opportunity to be champions for unity, to cooperate, not to compete, quite different, and all aim to be the very best team players that we can be. Right, moving on to lizards. I don't like lizards. <laughs> All the ladies who don't like lizards, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a lot of hands there. They don't seem to have a lot going for them. I had a lizard jump on my head once. That's bad, isn't it? Yeah, it's really bad. They're small. They don't seem to do much. You can catch one with, with your hand, apparently, but I wouldn't advise it. I'm sure they don't feel nice. But lizards have special kind of feet that enable them to climb over big fences, to walk up walls, which is why you can't get them out of your house, and even to go across ceilings. The extreme wisdom of the small and insignificant lizard is the way they use their sticky feet. They use their one talent with great persistence, and the combination of those factors means that the little lizard gets to places that other people wouldn't dream of getting to, even into king's palaces. And the Bible teaches that it's vital that we all follow the footsteps of the lizard. Not literally, or we'd all be going up the wall, right? We don't want that. But in the sense of using our God-given talent or talents, and that's the key. In the parable of the talents, we see this master who relates to Jesus, who entrusted three of his servants with different amounts of money. Now, he wasn't being unfair giving them different amounts. It was just that he could see that they had different levels of ability, so each one had the chance to be successful with what they had. Then he came back sometime later to see how they'd done. The servant who had been given five talents used them to make five more. The one who'd been given two used his to make two more. And they both got the same reward word for word, exactly the same. But then when we come to the one talent servant, there's a problem. Then the man who'd received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew you're a hard man, harvesting where you've not sown, gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. See, here's what belonged to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. And then he goes on, throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth not good. He was punished. Now, the story tells us that the basis for rewards for what we do in this life is not how many talents we have, be that money or gifts, 
spiritual gifts. It's not about opportunities. It's not about lack of opportunities. It's simply about how faithful we are with what God has given us, whatever that is. If the servant with the one talent had faithfully and diligently used what God had given him, we can assume that he would have followed the the rewards would have followed the pattern of the two and the five talent servant word for word. Yes, someone said to me once, the pay's the same. You know, one talent, five talents, from the most gifted to the least gifted, it's not the issue. The pay's the same, as long as we are faithful and diligent. And that's where the little lizard displays this extreme wisdom. He takes his one talent and with great persistence, he uses it to the max and ends up in king's palaces. The person who misses out on their eternal reward is the one who doesn't try, who's too lazy, too scared to use their gift. And that seems to be the particular temptation of the one talent servant. Just that tendency to say, oh, my gift's nothing much. You know, it doesn't matter if I use it or not. Who cares? And they go and bury it. Have to be careful because they end up, you know, missing out if only they'd known. Extreme wisdom, be like the lizards. We must go out and use our God-given talent or talent talents to the max. Okay, ants. Now there's a lot to learn from ants, even though they might drive you nuts on your bench, but anyway. But the extreme wisdom from our verse here focuses on how the ant prepares ahead. For what? For harder seasons. The ant knows that just because it's summer now doesn't mean that winter isn't coming. The wisdom is to think ahead and to take action. Now, we can apply this wisdom by storing up provision for the future. Now, sure, we've got to do what we can to prepare for our later years. But, you know, we see from the story of the rich fool in Luke 12, verse 16 to 21, how useless it is to store up just for this life. In fact, it's worse than useless. You know, that, that rich man thought that he had his future all sewn up. He'd saved so much, but God said, you fool. He'd prepared for the future, but that was only a very tiny portion of the future that adds up to life on this planet. He had nothing for eternity. His idea of preparing for the future was making sure that he could eat, drink, and be merry for the rest of his days. He was going to live for today from here on out. But he was a fool because there was no here on out. His number was up. He didn't even have one more day. In Proverbs, we read about some other important aspects of wisdom that we can learn from ants, like diligence, like being self-motivated. But God says that the way they prepare for the future is extreme wisdom. Now think extreme sports, you know, pushing it right to the limit. Extreme wisdom is preparing for the future. But this is, we see, this is not about saving for retirement. The rich fool that we read about did that, and God said, you fool. This is preparing for the future beyond the grave. 
It's about getting eternity sorted, which is vital because this life is so short compared to eternity, it's forever. The extreme wisdom of the end is to prepare for the afterlife and to prepare here and now while we have time. And of course, God wants us all to be saved, to be born again, so that our eternal destiny will be with him in heaven. And that is the extreme wisdom that we can learn from the end. And thank you. And at this point, I'll hand over to Pastor Sam, and he'll take it on from here. Thank you.